Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Today I want to read two passages of Scripture. Up front, if you don't have a sermon card and would like one, you could put your hand in the air. You will be served at this time. But uh, for those of you that already have one and those of you that are being served now, if you notice there at the top, the first scripture being found in the letter of First Peter and the second being in the book of Romans. But in First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Then the next being Romans chapter 12 beginning in verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to teach a message today titled, Desire to Grow. Will you say that with me? Desire to Grow. Before I do, I want to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that name is above every name. And I ask in the authority of that name that the Holy Spirit would confront wrong ideas, lies, deception, wrong worldviews, things that would try to exalt itself above the true knowledge of who you are, Father, and who Jesus is, that would try to challenge the power of God's Spirit that would try to keep people bound and less than what you have created, called, and made possible for them. I yield to you, Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. Bless people today. Exalt Jesus. It's in His name I pray. Amen. In my journey of following Jesus Christ, I was raised in a community of people who sought Jesus. And when I surrendered to the Lordship and the call of God upon my life when I was about 19 years old. I have since then, in my journey of following Jesus, came across many times this idea that Christianity is illogical. Or that because following Jesus includes faith or is framed as a life of faith, then following Jesus must be illogical. This notion I've came across many times in people's worldview and thinking is that faith and logic are not compatible. Maybe you are like me and have met many people who have had this idea that faith and following Jesus and having a relationship with God is not congruent with logic, with reasoning. 
We're going to address this theme today regarding logic in the context of what comes next after one confesses Jesus as Lord and surrenders to His Lordship in their life. This brings us to Romans chapter 12, one of our scriptures where Paul the Apostle is writing an influential and growing church there in Rome, and he says, I beseech you, you plural, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, paristeme in the Greek, that you present. The word present means to place a person or thing at another's disposal. To be at hand, to stand ready, and to stand by. Paul urges believers, he says, listen, after salvation and after declaring Jesus is Lord, I urge you to present, to stand ready, to stand at another's disposal. To present what, Paul? Well, he says, to present your bodies. Bodies there is literally the physical body. Notice he says that that you would present your body. What that means is, is you are more than your body. That's why he says you present your body. You, as a spirit and soul, present your body. Present your body for what? To God. For God's service, for God's work on the earth, for God's purpose on the earth. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures and God's dealing with the nation of Israel and His old covenant people, there was a type and example of this presenting. It was called consecration. And priests and those that were going to be used in the work of God upon the earth, they would be consecrated by having the blood of of a sacrificial animal applied to their right earlobe, to their right thumb, and to their right big toe. It was an illustration that now their ears, their hands, their work, their direction, and their feet is presented and surrendered now to the disposal of the one they're consecrated to, God and His work and service. Paul now in the New Covenant says that yes, now Jesus has came and yes, there's a new covenant and yes, there is grace and the empowerment of God. But it doesn't mean that as believers there's not to be a presentation of our body for the disposal and the use of God and His service and His work and His kingdom and what He's doing on the earth. In fact, Paul continues there and says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable. Everybody say reasonable. The word reasonable is the Greek word that we get our word logic from. Paul says that believers to present their body as a living sacrifice is logical. It's logical. It's not illogical. Faith and being involved in God's work and God's service on the earth, being a part of a community of followers of Jesus is not illogical. Paul says it's logical. It makes sense. That's when a believer is thinking reasonable. He says, this is your reasonable service. So Paul is urging. He's pleading. 
He understands that spiritual authority and spiritual influence, he can't make other brothers and sisters and believers. He can't make choices for them. He can't make them do choices. So he's pleading and he's begging them and he's urging them to have their bodies on standby for the king's disposal. That their bodies would be on standby for the king's orders, for the king's desires. That the bodies of believers would be dead for worldly goals. That their bodies would be holy, set apart, and therefore available for God's goals. For God's purpose on the earth that we as believers would have acceptable living for acceptable serving. Paul says this is reasonable. This is logical. I'm not urging and asking something of you that's illogical. It's very logical, Paul says. This is reasonable. In fact, the honor in sanctification, the honor in being set apart and surrendered to God's work and God's service is the honor of service for the king and his kingdom. And this is logical for believers. So number one, the first thing we see when we think about a desire to grow in chapter 2 and what comes after confessing Jesus as Lord is the logic of service. Paul appeals to the logic of serving based on the mercies of God. Notice he said, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul has just spent 11 chapters, chapters 1 through 11, in his letter to the church at Rome, talking about the mercy of God. That when we weren't seeking God, God was seeking us. That when we didn't deserve to be forgiven, God had made provisions even before we were born to forgive us of our transgressions and our selfishness and where we lived as our own God. Paul appeals to the mercies of God for 11 chapters. And he says, based on the mercy and the goodness of God, it's therefore logical for you to present your bodies to the service of the king, to the purpose of the king. In fact, this is something Paul did repeatedly with the churches. He did it to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge... Krino in the Greek, it means we judge. We, we judge with our mind. We come to a conclusion, a logic. What does he judge? That if one, Jesus died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live, come on, anybody alive today? That those who live should live no longer for themselves but for Him who died for them and rose again. Paul here appeals that the logic of service is the good news, the love of God revealed in Jesus. He appeals that when you understand the gospel and the good news and the love of God, it only then is reasonable to present our lives for the King's disposal for the king's purpose, for the king's will, for the king's desires, for the king's ambition, for Jesus' goals instead of our own. The good news is that 
He died while we were still undeserving for us. He died for us while we were still in our sin. He he died for us when we still desired to be our own king. He sacrificed His life while we were still serving ourselves. This logic of service is based upon the mercies of God. It's based upon the good news of the kingdom of God. It's based upon the good news of His love and that His love is for all. His love is for you. His love is for everyone on the earth today. His love is for everyone that is here. His love is for all. Secondly, letter B, you see this logic of service is that your previous life as a believer has ended. If you're now a follower of Jesus, your previous life has ended. Notice Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that when Jesus died, all died. The person you were, the life you had, the goals you pursued, the ambitions you had, that person in that life died. Paul says it's logical now to present yourself to God because the life that you had and the person you were died. The person that was a part of the rebellious first human race, that person died in Christ. That now he says those who live. That those who live. Those who now live as a part of the new creation, the new human race, the people of God. People that have been regenerated, born again, made alive through the new birth. That those who live now should no longer live for them Selves. That this new life that we have in Christ is not for ourselves. This new life we have is at the disposal of our King. And Paul says it's logical to stand ready, to stand by, waiting to be led, commanded, directed by the King. Why? Because the logic is our old life ended and the new life we have in Christ is not our life. It's to be His life. For His goals, His pursuits, His desires. And then see the logic of service is purchased bodies. That though we don't as believers have our new bodies yet, our body has been purchased by another. That my body... And your body as a follower of Jesus has been purchased by God. And it's been purchased not with silver and gold. It's been purchased by the life of the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 1.13, he writes the church in Ephesus and he says, In Him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, watch this, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Do you know what the purchased possession is? It's our bodies. We long for one day we will get a glorified body. No more wrinkle and spot, no more growing old and weary, swallowed up by the life of Almighty God. But yet as we wait for that new body, our current bodies have been purchased by God through Jesus Christ. A purchased possession. 
Paul makes his appeal, says, listen, it is logical to present what God purchased for God's purposes. It's logical to present what God purchased for God's purposes. I'll never forget when I surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and it was around about 1999, early 2000, I was in this revival service in a small church in South Carolina. And I remember in my journey of following Jesus, it was a time in my life where I was beginning to experience more frequently and consistent the revealed presence of God, the manifest presence of God, or what is uh, referred to as the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And I remember in that service of coming to the altar and laying flat on my face and just presenting myself. And I remember my heart saying, God, I don't care what you do with me. God, I don't care where you send me. I don't care where you want me to go. Just here is my life. Here is my life that's no longer mine. It's yours. Have your way. And I look back and think about how in one moment of literally an act of presenting the body of where Jesus and His disposal has led me since then. To Malaysia and Philippines and Woodstock and places for the king's disposal. So Paul says, listen, this presenting of our body for service is logical. Now what's interesting is that word logical, the Greek word there, that's translated reasonable in Romans 12, is the same word we see in 1 Peter. Let's look at it. So our other text is 1 Peter 2.2. He says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word. Well, word there is the same Greek word as reasonable in Romans 12. The pure milk of logic that you may grow thereby. You know what he's saying? He's saying a lot of people don't grow in the chapter 2 of following Jesus because they don't have pure logic. They don't have pure beginning understanding and thinking regarding salvation. It's the pure milk of God's beginning logic, of God's gospel beginning truths, that people begin to grow thereby. Meaning... Impure logic, impure reasonings, impure thinking hinders people from growing in all that God has made possible for them through Jesus Christ. Paul dealt with impure logic often. In Romans 6, he's dealing with impure logic. They say, hey, now that we're under grace, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no, impure logic. Salvation is forgiveness of sins only. No impure logic. Salvation is just going to heaven when we die. No impure logic. And you have people that are camped out at the beginning of chapter 2 and they're not growing up into the salvation and the possibilities of God and His kingdom because impure logic. Paul says, and Peter says, no, no, no. It's this pure line of thinking. It's this pure logic. It's this 
pure understanding of the basics and fundamental truth of what the gospel is and what the gospel has accomplished for you and I who have received the good news of God in Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, actually it's impure logic that keeps babes tossed to and fro through every wind of doctrine based on the trickery and deceitfulness of men. Impure logic. So Peter says, listen, you got to desire to grow. You have to desire the pure milk to grow. You have to desire pure basic teachings. You have to desire pure thinking about salvation. This is how my testimony and the fruits of the discipleship and the curriculum came about. Is that when I surrendered to the Lord and began to pursue His call, there was so much impure logic there that I thought I was growing, but I wasn't growing in the right direction. And you find a lot of people, when they come to the Lord, they want to start focusing on the deep teachings. You ever met the deep people? They're the deep people. They want to focus on the deep truths. Let me tell you, listen, all of that in the beginning will do nothing but keeping you from growing in the purity of salvation. You have to desire pure thinking about salvation. You have to desire pure logic regarding what God has done for us in Christ. The pure milk about Jesus, the Logos. So number one, Paul talks about the logic of our service. Number two, the logic of more grace and more faith. When you think about chapter two and your salvation experience in chapter two and following Jesus, you've got to understand the logic of more grace and more faith. Why? Because as letter A says on your sermon card, how you began is how you progress. How you began a relationship with Jesus the King is how you progress in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So the logic is, if you started by grace through faith, then it's going to be by grace through faith that you progress in your relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, Galatians 3, Paul dealt with this. The church there in Galatia, and he said, Hey, let's, let's focus on one thing right now. And he says, uh, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Someone say faith. Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Someone say Spirit. Are you now being made perfect, that means mature, by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of law or the hearing of faith? Someone say faith. I I, I felt it when I was going back over this. The other day, I felt God nudge me for some of you to say God's going to do it. I don't know what it is. I don't know where you've been waiting on God's promises to come into your life. I don't know where the trial and the fires came, but God's going to do it. But the question is, is how's He going to do it? And Paul tells us right here, God's not just going to do it. 
He's not just going to supply the power of His Spirit and do what only His ability can do, but He tells us how He's going to do it. He's going to do it by dependency on the Spirit of God. He's going to do it by as we depend and trust on the Spirit of God, not our own ability. The Spirit of God. And that's why, do you know scriptures refer to the Spirit of God as the Spirit of grace? The Spirit of grace. That the Holy Spirit communicates very practically and in relevant ways the supply of God for our needs. The Spirit of grace. See, grace is God supplying you and I what we don't have. I didn't have the ability to forgive myself. So God's grace supplied what I didn't have the ability for. He supplied Jesus in His blood. God's grace is Him supplying what we never could have on our own. That's grace. It's interesting, and right after Peter in 1 Peter 2.2, when he says, desire the pure milk of logic that you may grow thereby, the very next verse, 1 Peter 2.3, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He appeals to the grace of God. Did you taste grace in the beginning? Well, it's going to be more of that grace for you to continue to grow into the mature, perfect will of God for your life in Christ Jesus. So it's by grace, then see, it's through faith. It's going to be more grace. It's going to be more of God's supply and the work of His Spirit in our lives as we face more needs. Therefore, it's going to also be more faith. Paul frames... The book of Romans, this is why when they set the canon in the order of Scripture, they put Romans at the beginning. Because they said if, if a believer doesn't understand the pattern of sound teaching in Romans, then they will pervert and reach wrong logic regarding all of the other letters of Scripture. Even Peter warned of that, of those who are untaught and unstable. How they misunderstand Paul's letters. And they put Romans at the beginning. And you know how Paul frames from the beginning the book of Romans? Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. That as we started a relationship with Jesus is how we progress in a relationship with Jesus. It's going to be more grace and it's going to be more faith. In fact, look at Romans 5 and 17 for me. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam in the garden, book of Genesis... Death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive an abundance of grace. Someone say abundance. And of the gift of righteousness. You receive that by faith. So there's an abundance of grace. Then there's the appeal to our faith that God is the one who makes us right with Him through Jesus. It's a gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Watch this though. We'll reign in life. Through one, Jesus Christ. Wow. Do you know that you and I have more overcoming? Do you you and I realize today that there is more for us to overcome 
maybe emotionally, maybe desires, maybe relationally, maybe culturally, maybe financially, maybe in our jobs, that there's more to overcome. Well, Paul here says that we are called to reign and overcome in life more and more, but it's only going to happen when we have the pure logic of it's more grace and more faith. It's more grace and more faith. I want to tell some people today that there's still more areas the victory of Jesus wants us to reign over and in. And God's got more grace for more areas in our life. If you've experienced victory that's been given to you by God's grace in Jesus in an area, well, God's also got the same grace that you can put faith in for other areas of your life. Someone say, more grace and more faith. That's how we progress in experiencing more reigning and victory in our life. Hallelujah. So the logic of service, the logic of more grace and more faith. Let's go back to Romans 12 and read it again, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical service. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul then, after appealing to the logic of service and the logic of more grace and more faith, in verse 2 he appeals to the logic of separation. That now that Jesus is Lord of your life and you've entered a chapter 2 of what it looks like of following Jesus, Paul appeals to the logic of separation. He says, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. The word conformed there, it means don't let one's mind and character be conformed or fashioned to another, another's pattern. Don't allow your thinking, your logic, and your character be conformed and fashioned according to another pattern. What pattern is he talking about here? Well, he says the pattern of the world. World there is the the Greek word aeon. And it's the word that means an age or a period of time. Paul tells believers, now that you're a believer and follower of Jesus... Don't pattern your thinking and your character according to this age. Don't pattern and conform your thinking and your logic and your character to the current age around us. Now those of us that's been in uh, growth phases and through divine design for discipleship, we know the scripture talks about the three ages. This is age one. We're waiting for the age to come where Jesus will come and visibly reign over all the nations of the earth. But as believers, as we wait for the return of Jesus our King and the age to come, we're not to be conformed to the logic, the thinking, and the character of those still living in age one or in this age that has taken place. This is why Paul tells the church in Colossians, in Colossians 3, he says, set your mind on things above. Why things above? Because things above is the reality of the coming age. 
That Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father, He's going to come. So Paul says, set your mind on things above. Why? Because it's the reality that this age is passing away and a new age is coming. In all his epistles, he exhorts believers to put on the character of the new man, to put on the character of the new humanity, the character of the new creation of God that will live in the new earth and in the new heavens. So because of this, Paul says, listen, it's logical to be separated from the prevailing character and mindsets of our day. Listen, it's not popular, but it's truth. And I'm going to say it now in love and by grace. That compromised, non-growing believers are always those, regardless of the decade, that begin to be conformed to the logic and the thinking and the character of the prevailing sins of the culture they live in. Listen, compromised followers of Jesus who have no power of Jesus to witness through their lifestyle or through their words is because they began to be conformed to the logic and the thinking and character of the prevailing sins of the culture they live in. And they're always the ones who then begin to shout and say, Oh, the church since the beginning got it wrong. And now we're actually understanding that these sins are okay. No, no. Listen, that is being conformed to the logic and the character of the prevailing sins of the day. Paul tells and urges and pleads with believers, don't be conformed to that logic and character of the world around us. He says it's logical to be separated from the prevailing character and mindsets of our day. Galatians 6 and verse 14, notice what he says. He says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When Paul talks about the logic of separation, letter A, he appeals to the cross. He says, hey, believer, do you not realize that the world was crucified to you? That, that you got out, I don't have my phone on me, but you got out your, your calculator on your iPhone or your Galaxy or or if you still got a flip phone, God bless you, but you got out the calculator and you assigned spiritual value to all the things in the world. And you assigned spiritual value and significance to everything the world has to offer. And you added up all that the world is, all that the world could give you, all that you could gain in the world, but you, when you hit equal, it came out as nothing. That the cross is the believer's evaluation and judgment that the world adds up to zero. 
cross is my logical calculation and determined value of what the world is and what the world has to offer. But you know what? The cross is also the world's illogical calculation and determining value regarding Jesus. It's the world that looked at Jesus and said, according to our standards and our calculator of spiritual significance and value, when we add up who you are, Jesus, we consider you worthless, deserving of death. Listen to me. The cross has forever changed a believer's relationship to and with the world. He said, Pastor Chad, help me out. And what are you talking about regarding the world? Well, let me specify as the Apostle John did in 1 John 2 and verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's how we're defining it, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now watch this. The world's passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is the logic of separation. The cross is that this world is passing away because it doesn't meet God's standard. So it's logical to allow the cross to lead us to be separated from the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the affairs of a world that has went wrong. The logic of separation, B, letter B, it's a world under wrath. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, hey, you've turned from idols to serve the true and the living God and to wait from His Son from heaven. Watch this, whom He raised from the dead. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This world is under the wrath of God. It's passing away. Because God's already determined its value and ability to be involved in His eternal purpose. Listen, Jesus came to a world already condemned. Listen to me, Jesus came to a world already under the wrath and condemnation of God, its Creator. That's why He did not come into the world to condemn the world. It was already condemned. He came to save us out of a world under wrath. That's why it's called good news. But it's not good news to one who thinks the world is great and okay. But to the one that gets the pure logic of God's Word, that it's passing away that it's contrary to the love of the Father, that it's actually the world and the things in the world in our sin that's caused the hurt that some of us still carry today. It's that world. And God cares about you and I so much, that's why He's reserved it for judgment and wrath because He doesn't want a context where you and I continue to experience the emotional pain and trauma of a world that has went wrong. It's the hope of the new, the new earth. Then let her see the logic of separation is a growing friendship with Jesus. The Apostle James in James 4 and verse 3, 
It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasure. Talking about the prayer life of followers of Jesus. Adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, so you got to read Scripture correctly and slowly. It doesn't say that God becomes their enemy. If God was their enemy, He wouldn't send Jesus to rescue. It says that those that want to be friends of the world make God their enemy. They don't want God. They don't want God's will. Verse 5, Or do you think the Scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, the world has made God its enemy. Worldly people have made God their enemy. Meaning, do you actually want friendship with a world that crucified the Lord of heaven? That's what he's asking. That's what James is asking. Do you want friendship with the world that has went so wrong that it crucified the Lord of glory and the Lord of heaven, the one that we confess? Now listen, if we want growing friendship with Jesus, we got to understand that God's Spirit that dwells in us, He yearns for a growing friendship with us. And friendship with the world hinders us from growing in our friendship with Jesus and His Spirit who dwells in us. Now let's go back. So the band comes. Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The logic of service, the logic of more grace and more faith, the logic of separation, and lastly, the logic of approach. This brings us a question then. If the cross is our separation regarding our relationship to the world and the affairs of the world, then how are you and I as followers of Jesus to approach the world while we still live in the world waiting for the new world to come? How are we to approach the world? How are we to approach those in the world? That there's people that are caught up within the world. They're swept away by the flood of dissipation. They're swept up in a rebellion against their Creator, lawlessness, sin is lawless. How do we approach the world and those in the world? Well, listen, we're to approach those in the world from our transformation, our change, and our growth. We're to approach a person in the world from a transformed life. From a life that displays, not our power, but the power of God's grace to overcome areas where we used not to triumph. That now God's grace and power has led us to triumph and we didn't even deserve it. I've said many times from this pulpit, Jesus is doing me good for His sake. And He's doing you good for His sake. And His grace does us good. So that we can approach those in the world. 
declaring the glorious grace and ability of God to do for us what we don't deserve or can never do for ourselves. Paul talks about how this transformation happens. He says to be transformed and be able to approach people in the world with a transformed life from growth, it's experienced as this renewing of the mind takes place. Renewing of the mind equals transformation, a changed life, growth. The word transform there is metamorpho in the Greek. It sounds like an English word that didn't get translated much when it came over into English language, metamorphosis. It's the same word that describes the process and change of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Listen, by God's goodness and grace, I've had a lot of long sits staring out, watching caterpillars crawl and butterflies fly. I've had a lot of moments in this last season of life to observe the difference between a caterpillar's life experience and a butterfly's life experience. What they experience in the moment is totally different. What they experience in life is totally different. A caterpillar has a different experience and a different approach to life. And a butterfly has a different experience and a different approach to life. Let me talk about a caterpillar approach versus a butterfly approach. The caterpillar approach of approaching the world is you thinking that by conforming and identifying with the prevailing mindsets and ungodly character of our day, that you can reach those two in the world. That thinking like them is how you reach them. That's a caterpillar approach. Listen, you don't positively influence unbelievers by conforming and identifying with the prevailing mindsets and ungodly character of our day. You don't get a region to go out and see John the Baptist in the wilderness because he's saying and agreeing with the cultural sins of their day. No, no, no. You want to know the cultural sins of things? Go read 1 Timothy 3. Paul tells in the last days. Unthankful, ungodly, despisers of authority, unholy. He tells all these traits. We don't connect with the world by being like the world in the way we think. It's not a caterpillar to a caterpillar engagement that has God's transformative power present to convict unbelievers and ungodly. Listen, you and I having the same thinking as unbelievers isn't going to convict them. i got to ask us, because I'm going to stand before God i got to ask you today, what's going on in your cocoon? See, Paul said, to live a transformed life, it's like a butterfly or or a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Where does that process happen? It happens in the cocoon. Paul says the renewing of your mind is the cocoon. What's happening in the cocoon of your mind? Are you receiving the pure milk of God's logic? Are you allowing the impure logic of the standards of the world around us to conform your thinking and character to? As believers to grow, we have to now start getting a new logic. A a new logic. The milk of God's logic. See, the butterfly approaches this. 
is you approach as a butterfly who remembers what it's like to be a caterpillar. But you approach now with higher thoughts and higher ways. Listen, Jesus rebuked Peter for not having higher thoughts. Jesus rebuked Peter for not allowing his feet to be washed and not having understanding of the higher ways of God. We're to approach them remembering what it's like to live and approach the world as a caterpillar but with higher thoughts and a higher perspective, an eternal perspective. A consistent, transformed life. What a powerful witness it is in an ever-changing world. You know why God's after? The covenant relationships between people in this church, between marriages? Because consistency is a powerful declaration in an inconsistent world. In conclusion, I want to leave us with how are we to approach the world? I want to give us the treasure approach. Jesus in Matthew 6 and 19, and hold with me because I'm not going where you probably think I'm going with this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon unrighteous money. Listen, as believers... We're to approach the world with the treasure approach. That we have already rejected the world as having our treasure. We've already rejected the world as being our treasure. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we have already accepted that the cross is God's concluding judgment and lasting value of the world at hand. And we in our confession has said that our treasure is not the world. It's not in the world. Our treasure is Jesus who's in heaven at the right hand of God. Now watch this. Paul says when we don't get the pure logic, the pure thinking of our confession, and the reality that we have said Jesus is our treasure, then we go to the world trying to still find treasure trying to still find our identity, trying to still find our fulfillment, trying to still fulfill our own ambitions and goals. We go to the world when we're not clear that Jesus is our treasure looking for the world to give us something though we're believers that it can never give us. It can't give us true significance. It can't give us true love. It can't give us the grace of God. It can't give us a true identity from God. It cannot give us those things. But the treasure approach is my treasure is not in the world. It's not of the world. My treasure is Jesus. So listen, I no longer approach the world trying to get what I can only get and find in Jesus. And Paul said, Colossians 2, that in Jesus our treasure 
is all the wisdom and knowledge you'll ever need. Listen, I don't approach the world to try to figure out the world's way to get identity, success, value, accept it. No, no, no. I approach my treasure, Jesus, and in Jesus is the wisdom of, and knowledge of how to experience the reality of God's acceptance and, and God's goodness and my identity and these things. It's all found in Jesus, our treasure. Now listen, so now if the world, we're not looking to to define us, to complete us, to fulfill us, then now we go to the world not looking for those things or treasure. We go to the world thinking, how can we reveal in the world the reality of our treasure, Jesus, who's in heaven? See, listen to me. I'm not going to a job. I'm not going into the world looking for something. No, 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 listen. When we have the treasure approach, we're going into the world, not asking the world to complete us or give us anything. We're going into the world to try to reveal something. Our true treasure. Listen. And His ways. His thoughts. His logic. His goodness. And Paul then says, when we have that logic, it's only then reasonable to present our bodies at the disposal of our King, our treasure, Jesus Christ. That in Him, Colossians 2.10, we are complete. In Him we're complete. What a freedom to live then from the influence of the world around us. That now everything I have in the world is not assigned in my heart to significance, acceptance, value. Everything I I have in the world, I think, how can I use the world and the things in the world for my treasure, Jesus? How can I use my home for Jesus? How can I use my car for Jesus? How can the job be used for Jesus? Everything now. Approaching the world to reveal my treasure, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.